Well, for our message in the book of First Thessalonians, so if you would open there with me now to First Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be reading chapter 4, verse 13 through 5:11 this morning. We're continuing in his little eschatological section. Now, his inclusion of eschatology here is not so that we can fight over amill, post-mill, pre-mill, dispensational. That's not his purpose. His purpose here is to encourage us by the promise of Christ's return. And we see that at the end of chapter 4, he says, Therefore encourage one another with these words, verse 18. And at the end of the section in chapter 5, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. These are messages of great hope that the Lord will return, that he will set things in order, that the wicked will be judged, that God's people will be rewarded. And so we have this great encouragement, and we should look at it from that perspective. Uh, let's start reading at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a great cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have no need of anyone to write you anything. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the words of encouragement that we receive from Paul concerning the return of your Son, that we need not fear, that we need not grieve, that we need not lose hope, that it will happen, and that, Lord, we will be ready. And we'll ask, Lord, for your grace 
that we may indeed be ready. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be starting at chapter 5, verse 4, where we learn that believers are not living, not walking in darkness, so that they won't be surprised like a thief that comes in the night. We looked at in verse 1 through 3, the warning that the wicked who are living comfortably, happy in their sin, saying, oh, the Lord, where is this coming? We don't need to worry about that. It's not going to happen. Sudden destruction will come upon them. The day of the Lord will catch them unprepared, and they'll be surprised like when a thief comes in the night and takes everything from them. But we are not in darkness, he says, so that that day will not surprise us like a thief. Now you might wonder, is... Paul teaching that then believers should be able to predict when the coming of the Lord will be. I remember a few years ago, I met a false prophet. He was at the, came to our booth. We had a Christian booth set up at the fair in the county. And he said he knew what the seven thunders said. Now the seven thunders, when they sounded in Revelation, John was about to write, but he heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. But he knew He also knew when Jesus would return and kindly offered to give me a copy of his book. I kindly replied with the gospel, warning of his sin. And over his continuous protests, I shared with him what he needed to do. Of course, he wasn't the only one. We remember a few years back in the 1990s and early 2000s, Harold Camping is perhaps the most public man predicting the end of the world. Uh, he has predicted the end of, he had predicted the end of the world perhaps as many as twelve times based on his interpretation of biblical numerology. When somebody starts getting into numerology, you know you get a problem to begin with. Uh, nineteen ninety two he published a book saying nineteen ninety four would be the return. Predicted the world would end. He's most famous for his very high-profile prediction that May 21st, 2011, Jesus would return. He calculated it to be exactly 7,000 years from the biblical flood. I don't know how he does math, but I don't calculate it that way. Anyway, his charity, FamilyRadio.org, launched in a full push to let the whole world know. They lost $100 million of their worth during this campaign. They lost assets. Some of his followers quit their jobs, emptied their bank accounts to help pay for the billboards. Some traveled the country in a caravan to spread the world. I was in Cambodia at the time. It was even famous in Cambodia. Christians were talking about it. They had a website, wecanknow.com. They spread the words on T-shirts and bumper stickers and postcards. The date passed without incident. They said, well, my math was wrong. And he recalculated it to be October 21st, 2011. That date also passed. He had a stroke, presumably from the stress, and he died two years later. Of course, this isn't a new phenomenon. If you look at church history, there are repeated efforts to predict the return of the Lord with dates. The second century, there was a schismatic heretical sect called Montanism, It began in modern-day Turkey in an area called Phrygia. And 
they were saying the end of the world had come. Montanus, who claimed to speak through the Holy Spirit, predicted that, and they believed his coming was imminent any time. It's about to happen, not any time meaning now in the next 2,000 years, but meaning this year, this week, this month. And many Christian communities were virtually abandoned as people left their homes and migrated to a plain between two villages in Phrygia, where Montanus claimed the heavenly Jerusalem would descend to earth. Now, needless to say, 2,000 years ago almost, that did not happen. These heretics predicted that they knew when Christ would return. The Bible says, well, Jesus, as we see in Matthew and Mark, says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Matthew 24, 36. But people still insist on predicting when the end of the world will happen, when Jesus will return. And they claim that it's a prophecy. They claim the Holy Spirit has told them. But that's not how it's going to work. If we were able to predict the coming of the Lord, it would nullify the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the whole New Testament that says it's intended to come as a surprise, especially for the wicked. If you could predict it, it wouldn't be a surprise. Uh, Consider last week, for you yourselves are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the knife. While people are saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come as the labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The purpose of it being a surprise is to catch the wicked off guard and have them stand before the judgment of God. That's God's plan. Now, we are warned to look for and see these signs. And we might be able to know, is it near, is it not near? But really the purpose of looking for the signs is to show that the prophecies and predictions of these heretics are completely bogus. Jesus warned us not to be led astray. He said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famine and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away because and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because the lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all that the end, then the end will come. Matthew 24, 4 through 14. There's a lot of stuff Jesus said will happen first. And the reason he says that is not so we can predict when he returns, but so that we'll know these claims are false, that we won't be led astray by these heretics and their teachings, and we won't be concerned or frightened by the claim that Jesus has come or will come. Now, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes to them, because they were unsettled. Somebody was claiming that the day had come. 
We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. It goes on to explain the great things this man will do. But we need to note that they had a date setter saying that it was imminent or maybe that it had already happened. And Paul is showing the absurdity of that by telling them the Antichrist and all the things that entails come first. So it obviously hasn't started. The idea here is not to be able to know the date, but we're given these things that must happen first so we can recognize the falseness of claims that these prophets have. Now, Paul's purpose here is warning us to be ready for the day of the Lord, to be prepared, to stay awake and sober, waiting for the Lord to come so that we may welcome him rightly when he comes. Jesus said, stay awake, for you do not know the day on what day your Lord is coming, Matthew twenty-four forty-two. And again, at the end of the parable of the ten virgins that we read last week, Watch, therefore, you, because you know neither the day nor the hour, Matthew twenty-five thirteen. The purpose of this is that we be ready for the Lord. Jesus asked, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and where is this coming that's spoken of? And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know. That's what Paul is talking about as well. And will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, 45 through 51. Remember back in verse 3, we discussed how the wicked have no fear of God. They have no expectation of his coming or of his judgment. And they go along sinning without any concern for their sin. Truly, they are in the dark. And Paul contrasts that with the believer who is in the light, who should see the dangers of sin and be ready to face judgment when God comes or when we we die and face the, the first judgment of where we go, to heaven or to hell. That thinking really ties in, that explanation I just gave, ties in with the next verse. Keep awake and sober. Jesus' return will be at an unexpected time, verse 5 and 6. We are, he says there, the children of light. Not the children of night, not the children of darkness, but the children of light. Paul prayed that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 11 through 14. We were in Satan's camp, in the camp of darkness, the camp of sin, the camp of rebellion against God. But he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son, into the light. We are no longer in the darkness. 
we had an extensive run through first and second and third John. And you remember in first John, talking about walking in the light. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all our sins. 1 John 1, 5-7. We are, as believers, walking in the light, which means walking in obedience to God, walking in holiness with God, not in darkness and sin. He goes on, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. When Paul says here in our passage today that we are not in darkness but in light, that is what he was talking about, that we are no longer walking in our sins, in our corruption. We are walking in the light and holiness and goodness. John continues saying that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that those are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God nor is the one who does not love his brother. The practice of righteousness does not mean perfection, but it means the repenting of sins, the endeavoring to do more, the love for God and for what is right. And that is <coughs> what it means really to be a Christian. Clearly the children of light are the children of God. They're the believers. John says, but all whom did receive him receive Christ who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, as who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. John 1, 12 and 13. Paul's desire for us as children of the light was that we live godly lives, holy lives, that we be obedient to God's revealed will, the scriptures. He tells us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast <coughs> holding fast to the word of life, to the Bible, the truth, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. You know, that obedience to God's revealed will, the word of God, is what sets us apart really from Christians in our, from non-Christians, sets the Christians apart in our daily life, that we should be living as children of light, walking with God. Children of light are the believers whose walk, Christian walk, makes them truly shine as lights in the world. 
But of course, doing that is not easy. We all sin every day. Sometimes we are deeply grieved and moved by the depth of our sin. And even though we repent, we want to do more to do better. And that's why he's telling us here not to sleep, which we'll cover in verse 7 because he talks about that again. Not to sleep as the wicked do. We must not be like the world. We're warned to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5.11 We are not to be partakers of their life. We are not to be asleep, but to be awake and to be sober, he says here in this verse. Paul uses this same idea in Romans 13, where he warns us, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The night is gone, far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He mentions that armor again in verse 8, so we'll just talk about that in a minute. He says, let us walk properly in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 13, 11 through 14. Clearly, Paul's idea in being awake and being sober is about walking the right Christian life, not in the way the wicked walk, in immorality and evil and hate, but the way God has called us to, in love for him and love for the brothers. We get a similar exhortation from Peter. He says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, yes, be sober-minded, ready for the day of the Lord, is what he's saying. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 17. The idea of being God's children and walking in the light is to be obedient to his will, to his revealed will. Watch yourselves, let your heart not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness in the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, Jesus says. So just as a man walks into a trap... And suffers, so also the day of judgment will be like that to the wicked. It will come upon them suddenly like a trap, like a thief in the night. It will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, Jesus says. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21, 34 through 36. Jesus is calling them again, us again not to be lost in this world asleep to the things of God, but to be awake, to be worshiping him, to be fighting against sin. Uh, Paul, I love how Paul puts it, you know, fight the good fight, run the race set before you. Do, that is what we are called to do as Christians. And that is what we are being warned against. Don't sleep, don't think, 
Oh, I've done enough for God. I should be good for the rest of my life. I can lead it now for my pleasures, for my gain, and forget about the Lord. It says, no, be awake. Wake up from your slumber. Be sober-minded. Cast off the works of darkness, sin. Be holy in all your conduct so that the judgment of the day of the Lord, when it comes, you will be blameless and innocent. That means you'll be doing what your master wants you to do, so he'll be pleased with his faithful servant. Otherwise, you may be surprised by the day of the Lord. Caught, as it were, in front of an empty canary cage with feathers sticking out of your mouth when the Lord walks in. Oh, I didn't do anything. No, you can't get away with it. That's why in all of our toilsome lives under the sun, we're called to humble ourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. 1 Peter 5, 6-11. The idea is that we live a new life in Christ. And living that new life in Christ means living in obedience to him, living in the light, walking in the light with Christ, not in the darkness, not in our sin. Paul's admonitions to fight the good fight, run the race set before us, is very important. And James says he gives us more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James 4, 6-10. We need to be awake, sober-minded, living the right life, expecting God will poke his head in at any moment be it because we die or because he returns. And then the judgment will come. And we need to be ready. That is the way for the believer. But the unbeliever, verse 7, sleep. They get drunk at night, all the while saying peace and security. They have no fear of God, no concern for God. Nighttime really is the time for evil. Remember Jesus' arrest? Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out to arrest him, you have, come out, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Why did they not arrest him in the temple? Well, they were afraid they would be stoned because of all the people who had believed. But they came out against him like he was a thief. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Luke 22, 52 and 53. Evil is best done at night in the darkness when it cannot be witnessed and seen clearly. That is why 
robberies and murders and sexual immorality and drunkenness, they all tend to happen under the cover of darkness. We remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and I always like to continue on, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3:16 through 21. The world hides in darkness, not coming to Christ, because the light will expose their heart. The believer, when our heart is exposed and we see the wickedness and the sin and the corruption, we are not driven to despair. Despair. We'll look at that next week, starting at verse 8 or verse 9, that we're not destined for wrath. But we do not have fear. We have sorrow. We have repentance. We have a desire to repent to God, to change our ways, to live a more holy life. And we can come to the light. Show me my heart. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I sin, that I might change, that I might be what God wants me to be. That is what we say as believers. We do not live in the darkness and in the light, but in the light. Paul gives them a warning. He says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully, then, at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is what we find revealed in Scripture. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5, 11 through 21. We are called not to live in darkness, but in the light. I remember a friend I stayed with a few times at a church up north, northeast. The church had a split, and he was so depressed with the fighting that he went to another church. Well, he decided to go to the vineyard where there were 5,000 people. And he said, I like it there, because if somebody starts getting too close, close and asking personal questions, I can just sit in another part of the church. I said, well, you're hiding in the darkness, hiding in plain sight in the darkness. We shouldn't do that. We want our sin exposed to us so that we can repent, so that we can change, so that we can be transformed more into the image of our Lord. Night and darkness are the realm of sin, yes, but God sees all. Jesus said, nothing is covered that will up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Luke 12, 2 and 3. We need to be awake, be sober, be aware. 
God sees everything. And we need to be diligent in our life for God. Verse 8, we are not in darkness. We belong to the day. This is an important thought that he is conveying to us. We walk in the day, in the light. We've already seen our little review of First John when we were back in verse 5. Paul reiterating our being children of the light who belong to the day and should live a different life shows how important that is for us as believers. If we love God and we walk with him in the light, we should be diligent to do so because there's no darkness in God and no one who walks in the dark is walking with God. Remember, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. First John 5, 3 and 4. Uh, we do not feel burdened by trying to obey God's revealed will. We rejoice even when we say, it's hard. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was an atheist until I was 27. I became a Christian, and as I was reading through the Bible, and I would listen to it in cassettes in my car, I was driving along, and one day I just said, Lord, everything I know is wrong. <laughs> as I'm reading the Bible and learning his will, Everything I'd been taught in this world, everything I believed in my life, I realized was wrong. And sometimes it's hard to change. Sometimes we like what's wrong. But his will is revealed. We know what it is. We want to obey. And as a believer, we should not feel it's burdensome to obey, but we should rejoice, even though it's a challenge at times. And this is so because we walk in the day. We need to be sober. We need to be watchful. We walk in the light where everything is always exposed. We just saw that in John 3, 16, and Luke 2, or Luke 12, 2 and 3, and Ephesians 5, 11 and following. It says the same. And here we're called to be in the light. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on its stand. So that those who enter may see the light, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be coming to light. Take care then how you hear, for, his, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Luke eight sixteen through 18. We are to walk aware that God sees all, that God knows all, that nothing can hide us from him, not the depth of the ocean, the darkest cave, the furthest place, not even the grave can hide us in what we have done from him and from his judgment. And so we are to watch and be sober and be ready. And he tells us here in verse 8 to put on the armor of God, the chest plate of light and faith, the helmet of hope and salvation. Now, we should recognize similar terminology in Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, it's much further developed, this analogy of armor for Christian warfare. I think as a teacher and a preacher and a pastor, there are times when Paul gave the short version 
and times where he gives the long version. And in Ephesians 6, he definitely gives the longer version. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Really, the purpose he's writing in, to the Thessalonians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints, Ephesians six, ten through 18. There's something we should note clearly about this. If we're to have hope in God in the day he returns, in the day he judges the world justly, if we're to have hope in that terrible day and make it a great day for us, and we need to walk in the light and make full use of all the means of grace the Lord has provided for us. Our faith, our hope, holiness, the gospel, salvation, all of these things work in us to make us a new person, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are to put off all those things belonging to our own life and put on the new hope and the new life. That is his meaning here when he says that we are not in darkness, that that day should take us by surprise. We will be ready for that sudden test, the pop quiz, the final judgment, because we're always ready day in and day out. That's what he means to be awake, to be sober, to be alert. Jesus says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Luke 21, 34. As children of light have been transferred from the, to the kingdom of light, we must walk in the light with the one true living God who is light in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. We must walk in the light because we as believers are not in darkness. Our Lord will return on an unexpected day and hour to catch the wicked in their wickedness. We need to be caught doing what is right. That is his point and his purpose. If you want to be ready for Christ's triumphant return, for the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, then you need to work diligently to live a holy and godly life. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because I was a very worldly person and that's really the answer to worldliness. He finishes the book with these words. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments 
For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. That day of judgment will come. For the believer, it should be an encouragement to live our lives, not worrying about what we lose in this life, not worrying about suffering, not worrying about persecution, because we know he has promised a reward. We will be with him whether we are dead or alive. We will be with him forever. And that's why verse 11 says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. These words he gives us are words of great hope, of great joy. And we should be careful then to live by them. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercies, for your grace, for your strength. We thank you, Lord, that you did take us out of the domain of darkness where we had lived in slavery and servitude to Satan, and that you freed us and made us children of light to walk with you in the light. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of your Son who cleanses us from all sins, the blood of your Son shed on the cross, the life, Lord, that he led to bring us the reward promised that we might have eternal life, that we might have hope. And we pray, Lord, that we would be diligent in this life to make use of all the means of grace you've given us, that we might lead holy and godly lives, that we might hear those precious words, well done, my good and faithful servant, that we would always be ready to face you and to face judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.